Heavenly Father, my thankful heart, Father, is focused on my return, my opportunities to serve here, Father, on the warm greeting that I've received, but mostly, Father, on the work you do here day in and day out, regardless of who stands here. I'm so thankful, Father, that that the work of this building and, and the group who meet here has never been, never will be dependent on me or on anyone else. Who could bear that burden, Father? Who could meet that expectation? None of us could, Father. And so, Father, I'm thankful that you are faithful. I'm Father, I'm th- thankful that you have the, the means and the wisdom and the desire to do great things to your to your own glory for the glory of your name and for the blessing of those whose lives you touch i'm thankful father that that is the god we serve i'm thankful lord that you have been persistent in that work here and father we we're not worthy to have that opportunity we have not anything to bring to the work that you do through your word in this place and yet father Because you love us, you've opened the door for us to be here and to serve here. And, Father, thank you for that, too. Thank you for the men and women who have served here for many years, continuing to do so today in the lives of those before us here who sit in this room. And, Father, we know that that's been made possible because we've honored your word. For, Father, that is your highest priority according to what you've told us. You honor your word even above your own name, you tell us. So, Father, as we open a new book, a new study, it's our privilege, Father, to read what you've written. It's our duty to heed what you tell us. And, Father, we are here to learn so that we may do those things. We may heed. We may obey. And, Lord, I know that the word before us may challenge us at times. It's always beyond our ability to understand, Father. But we trust you to show it to us through the word, uh, through the spirit, to open our minds and hearts to understand it. But more than that, Father... Convict us, encourage us, train us for righteousness' sake. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in July 2015, the magazine Psychology Today published a list of the five ways that we should deliver bad news to another person. And the five steps went this way. Tell at least part of the truth, if you think the person can handle hearing it. Number two, sugarcoat the news if you don't think the person can handle the truth. Number three, if the bad news involves a potential threat to their self-esteem, well then help that person save face. Uh, Develop some kind of cover story to preserve their reputation. Try to help them avoid embarrassment. Number four, take your time. Prepare the message carefully. Choose your words carefully. Go at it in the right moment. Pick the right time. And then finally, step five, rely on others to help you deliver the message. Always come as a team. It's a more effective way to deliver bad news. The article says, if you do it this way, then you're going to be far more likely to deliver the bad news in a successful manner, whatever, I guess, success means. Now, about this point, as you hear me talking about this stuff, I'm worried maybe some of you are wondering, what's the bad news Steve's about to deliver, right? Well, rest easy. I'm not going to deliver any bad news for you. But there was a man... A priest from Judah who lived long ago in the nation of Israel. And the Lord called that man to deliver some very bad news to the nation of Israel. But unfortunately, this particular man had never read psychology today. Because in the way he delivered the bad news to Israel, he goes about it 
in violation of all five of those rules. He delivered the bad news according to the wisdom of God, as opposed to the wisdom of men, so-called wisdom. For example, he held back nothing. None of the terrible news, none of the details, none of the facts. He sugarcoated nothing. He gave all of the details of what went wrong in the nation of Israel and what God was prepared to do in consequence. He cared nothing for Israel's self-esteem. Quite the opposite. He targeted their pride with what he said. He called them out for their apostasy and he refused to let them hide behind their excuses. And though, yes, he did choose his words carefully, he chose them for maximum impact as opposed to softness. He spoke in graphic and even vulgar terms, as we'll see. And he did so because he was trying to awaken this nation to its own depravity. He sought to offend Israel just as they had offended their God. And then finally, he stood alone, virtually alone, in his accusations. He lived at a time in which multiple prophets were operating in Israel in general, but he himself worked alone. He was rejected by his own people as a result of his ministry. They responded to his declarations with cynicism, not repentance. In fact, history does not even record this man's birth or his death or even if he had any children, we know virtually nothing about his personal life. There is no record of him outside of his own book. This prophet, this man, his name was Ezekiel. His name means strengthened by God, and I think that's because he had to be in order to accomplish the mission he was given. Ezekiel is called a major prophet of the Old Testament, and he was called by God in Judah in the days around the Babylonian captivity. This man is unique in Scripture. He's even enigmatic. God asked things of him that he asked of no other prophet. You're going to see as we studied the book of Ezekiel that he does some things that almost defy explanation, that seem quite bizarre. But he also received rare and marvelous visions unequaled by any other prophet. He was told to explain to Judah the reasons for why God was bringing harsh judgment against the people. And he delivered that message exactly as the Lord required. He didn't mince words. He didn't soften the blow. He certainly didn't worry about hurting anybody's feelings. God told Ezekiel to arrest a disobedient Israel with dramatic words of judgment so that they would be without excuse. But if you're worried that this is going to be a downer, in the midst of all this bad news... God also gave Ezekiel a message of hope, a glimmer of hope for the future. Because he gave Ezekiel this stunning preview of the glory that God has prepared for the nation in a coming kingdom. That one day, they're going to return. And one day, they'll be regathered. And one day, they'll receive the promises of God. They'll see a renewed temple. It'll be filled with the glory of God. And even though they have been unfaithful to their covenant promises to God, he would remain faithful to his side of the bargain. And so as we study this book together, we're going to learn a number of things. We're going to learn some history. You have to understand the times in which it was written. We're going to learn about the covenants, which are the reasons for why God acts as he does. We're going to learn about sin. We're going to learn about judgment. But above all these things, what this book is here to teach us is about the glory of God and about the power of God's promises found in His Word. Ezekiel, more than any other Old Testament work, emphasizes the glory of God. In fact, the phrase, that they will know that I am Lord, it appears over 60 times in this book, that they will know that I am the Lord, which reminds us that the Lord chooses to reveal Himself to us, to reveal His purposes in our life, so that He would receive glory for who He is and what He does. 
But friends, when God's people turn from Him into idolatry and into other kinds of sin, we spurn that revelation, we break fellowship, we do not acknowledge His glory. Thomas Constable said it this way, he said, God used the events of Ezekiel's life to teach His people and all people that He is the only true God. And in the future, He will bring things to pass that will teach people that only He is God. And we can learn that even now, as we gain God's viewpoint on life from this great book. Then we can help others make sense out of what's happening, because we can understand the one who is creating the history. So Ezekiel is the classic Old Testament text that records God's faithfulness to his word concerning Israel. He fulfills a lot of his promises in the course of what we read in Ezekiel. He fulfills his promises to judge Israel for their sin, but then he reiterates his blessings to them in a future time of glory. And he promises ultimately to them in Ezekiel that we'll move out of this cycle of sin, judgment, and restoration. Sin, judgment, restoration. He'll get done with that cycle ultimately because he's going to bring a new and better covenant. One that will put an end to this cycle. We know that the new covenant is expressed in the Old Testament. Traditionally, we refer to Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31, 31. And certainly that talks to it. That actually is where it's named. But Ezekiel who was a contemporary with Jeremiah, also tells us about this new covenant. So now what about us? We're not Israel. We know that. So as the church, what do we have to look forward to in this book? Well, let me tell you, there's a lot to be excited about. Because the prophecies that have existed in this book, going on now 2,500 years since it was written, they are coming to pass today before our very eyes. We are literally living in the days that Ezekiel prophesied about. Because some of the prophecies include the regathering of Israel, which we see now happening, and others. Some of them have already happened, but the most dramatic and and mysterious visions that Ezekiel received, they are yet to happen, but soon to be reality. This is a very timely study. So let's dive into the opening chapters. Today's a a bit of a soft entry into the book of Ezekiel. If you know anything about the book, if you've ever read it, then you already know how dramatic the book begins, how dramatically it starts, the first three chapters especially. And it'd be so cool if we had the time, and speaking about myself, I doubt this is necessarily a shared perspective, but it'd be so cool if we had the time to get through all three chapters in one sitting because it's one scene and so dramatic. We don't. Not today. So we're going to go in softly today and then dive a a much deeper section in next time. Well, let's get going to understand how we come into the book and where it begins. I'll start, of course, at the beginning. Ezekiel 1.1 Now it came about in the 30th year, on the fifth day of the fourth month, while I was by the river Chebar, among the exiles, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God on the fifth of the month. In the fifth year of King Jehoiakim's exile, the word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel, the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the river Kebar. And there the hand of the Lord came upon him. This is our introduction. And his book begins with geography, a little bit of geography, and chronology. And that's one of the distinctives of Ezekiel's narrative. His book is known for this. It's known for its precise time and historical references. This book is a collection of prophecies. If you want to get a big picture uh, in your mind, a big picture of what you're about to dive into, this is a book of a series of prophecies, one after another. They are presented in chronological order. That is to say, as he received them, he wrote them down. So as they flow through the book, it's also chronologically the same order that he received them. There's a total of 14 of them in this book. 
He received these over about 20 years while he was in exile with the rest of Judah. If you don't know the history of Israel, don't worry, we'll cover it as we move. I'm not going to try to dive into all of it on the first day. We'd just lose it all anyway. Next week you wouldn't remember it. But it's enough to know today that as a nation, Judah, the southern kingdom of Judah, had been taken out of their land and brought to Babylon in captivity by Nebuchadnezzar, by the nation of Babylon. And Ezekiel is one of those who went with the people. And he's sitting in Babylon. And it begins in Babylon that he begins to receive these visions from God. And as he gets each of the 14, he dates them. He dates them so precisely, I can tell you exactly on the calendar which day he was talking about in each case. Altogether, as I said, there's 14. The first of those 14 runs from chapter 1 to chapter 3. And according to the date he just gave in verse 1, this is July 31st, 593 B.C. July 31st, that's on the modern calendar, of course. He speaks here in terms of the Jewish calendar, but that's what it would be for us. He says it happens during the reign of King Jehoiakim, who was living also in captivity. You're not much of a king when you're in captivity, but hey, you know, it's better to be a king in captivity than not be a king, I guess. He was taken into Babylon the same year that Ezekiel was, which would have been 597 B.C. So we just said he receives this in 593 B.C. So he's been in captivity now four years by the time he gets his first vision. And the year that we start with here, 593, is the base year for all of his prophecies. So from this point forward, he'll refer back to this year as the baseline, zero. So we start at 593. And it says here, moving to the geography, that he was by the river Kebar in the midst of the exiles of Judah. The Jews, as I said, were taken into slavery by Nebuchadnezzar. And when he brings them into Babylon, out of Jerusalem, he settles them along this place called the the Kebar River. It's not really a river at all. It was a man-made channel. They had built this channel off the river Euphrates that moved water out of the river Euphrates eastward around the east side of the city of Babylon. And they did it principally to feed water to the Jewish slaves who were settled on that side of the city. They lived in a community there. They called the community Tel Aviv, which means Old Spring. Tel Aviv, Old Spring. And it's actually a euphemism. Those two words together actually communicate something old and something new. Spring is a euphemism for new. And so they called this an old new. Something old, that is the people of Israel living in a new place, Tel Aviv. And that channel, Kevar, was bringing water to them. And the Jews living here had a surprisingly comfortable existence. I know for us, when we hear that someone's been taken bondage into slavery, of course, we immediately make an assumption about what life must have been like for them. And certainly, they're not as happy as they were when they were back home in Jerusalem because they've been taken out of their homes. Some of them were killed. Others were treated very badly. It was a bad time. But once they were settled... The goal was not to make Israel miserable. The goal was to take them out of their land so that that land could be conquered by Babylon. And so what Babylon did was they gave them a place to live. They were allowed to own their own homes. They were allowed to own their own businesses. They could travel freely within Babylon. They were free to worship as they chose to in their little space. In fact, life became so comfortable for them in that place that 70 years later, when there's a new king, when the Persians have conquered the Babylonians, and that new king in Persia, Cyrus tells Israel, the Lord has told me you're free to go back to Israel now. Not many of them went. Most of them chose to stay right where they were. That tells you something about how comfortable life became for the Jews in captivity. Ezekiel was not one of the Jews responsible for the judgment that put them in Babylon, and yet he was caught up in it. And though some in the nation were faithful to God, like Ezekiel, you notice they were all subject to the judgment? 
God didn't selectively imprison or enslave just the bad people in Israel. He took the whole nation. Why? Because the basis for the captivity was the Old Covenant's promises. And in the Old Covenant, God said to the nation of Israel that unless you keep my law perfectly, you as a nation will be subject to certain consequences. And the terms of that deal of the Old Covenant were national in their focus. It was not an individual covenant. Not every Jew had to agree to it. It was the nation. And when the nation agreed to it, the whole nation was bound to it, like you and I. When we're born into a nation, we find ourselves under the laws of that nation, regardless of whether you and I individually decided we liked each and every one of those laws. You get them all. That's just part of the deal. Similarly, when you were entering into the nation of Israel by birth... You became part of a covenant, whether you wanted it or not. But the covenant had strict terms. And the terms said that if you did not keep it, there would be a consequence. And one of the consequences is this captivity. Moving the people outside the land, as God said he would do. But here you have Ezekiel, a faithful follower of Yahweh, still, though, he's in captivity, living among the exiles. He says there he's in their midst. And then he adds that this prophecy came in the 30th year, which is a reference to his own age. He's saying, I was 30 years old when I got this vision. Why do you think that matters? Why do you think he mentioned that? Well, notice what it says in verse 3 when he says he was a priest. Now, a priest in the nation of Israel had a time in the man's life when he was eligible to start acting in temple service, to go do the very thing priests are supposed to do. When were you allowed to begin service in the temple as a priest? Age 30. Age 30. So Ezekiel says he's 30 years old now. How long has he been in captivity? Four years. 593, he was captive in 597 B.C. Four years later, he's 30. That means he was taken when he was 26. So knowing he turned 30 while he was in captivity, we can then also say he never had the chance to serve as a priest in the temple. And now the Lord is calling him, he says, at age 30, into a form of service as a prophet, not as a priest. So here's what we know about Ezekiel already. This is a man who spent all his early adult life preparing to serve God in performing sacrificial rituals in a temple service. And priestly preparation was a demanding thing. It's not like the guy just showed up on day one, got his badge, checked in, and started work. There were years of preparation for anyone who was designated to become a priest. And no doubt, knowing Ezekiel, he dedicated himself to that hard work. You can imagine this guy getting up every day and doing what was required to be prepared for that day when he turned 30, when he would get to use what he's learning, right? We can assume that. But just as the time approached for his service, suddenly this guy finds himself dragged off to a foreign land. And, by the way, the temple is ultimately destroyed, which puts a whole end to your career. His opportunity for service as a priest is seemingly stolen from him right on the eve of being able to do everything he's been preparing for. But in reality, what we find is the Lord had been preparing him, yes, but he was preparing him for a very different kind of service, and a greater one, in fact, than the one he was expecting. And that predicament, Ezekiel's predicament, is a reminder that God has set each of us on some kind of course of preparation. And that course of preparation, whatever it looks like in your life, it certainly suggests a certain role that you're supposed to go serve God in. And yet, when the day comes, you need to be prepared for the possibility that the Lord may direct you in some completely new and even better way of service, but yet one you did not see coming, one you did not expect to follow from your preparation. 
And if you think like that, then you'll be prepared to serve God properly in that call because you're open to detours in your life. And likewise, on the flip side, you'll be more likely to receive that person who comes to you in service but doesn't look the part, doesn't have the pedigree, not the one you would have expected. I like to say that Jesus calls unqualified people to serve Him, but He doesn't leave you untrained. But that training, at least from my own experience, it can be pretty unorthodox. He uses all your experiences to prepare you for serving Him. And when He puts that training to work, eventually He may do it in a very surprising way. A servant may be trained in farming or in business or in some trade of one kind or another. And then when the day comes, the Lord may take that training and put that service into work of a ministry that's totally different than what the person trained for. I've seen this over and over again. History would tell us this is God's pattern. Because you can look through history and find many good servants of God who gained their start in ministry in some unorthodox way, like a good shepherd who's never been trained as a pastor, or a good Bible teacher who had never attended seminary. But even the apostles, you remember the guys that Jesus chose originally, they were never trained to be religious leaders. They had no respect among the religious leaders of their day, but God picked them to found the church. To what degree does fishing help you prepare to to lead a church or tax collecting? Actually, a lot. A lot. There's a lot of life lessons in one world that transfers very well into the next. So Ezekiel spent time preparing to be a priest. And I suspect he might have wondered if that was wasted time. Since he's going to spend his whole life in exile. Where there's no temple. But as it turns out, his priestly training became critical to his role as a prophet. There's a reason why there's only a few men in all of the history of scripture who were prophets and priests. He's one of them. Because many of the visions that he will give us in this book concern priestly matters. And namely, his most famous, the thing he's most known for, I guess you might say, is his prophecy concerning the temple in the kingdom. This idea that God brings back a temple in the time of the thousand year reign, which just blows our mind because we've learned from Hebrews, for example, that there's no need for sacrifice any longer. And yet there is sacrifice in the kingdom, which when we get there, we'll understand it better. But for now, you can see how knowing something about that process, about that world, might help you if your prophecies are going to concern those things. So remember Ezekiel's career shift as you consider how God's calling you to serve. Give some thought to that. You may be trained as an accountant or a soldier or a teacher or a nurse or an athlete or even a pastor, but God may take that preparation and call you to use it in some new and surprising way. A farmer who's trained to work the land may be called by God to pastor a church that meets in his barn. Or that seminary-trained pastor may be called out of the pulpit to plant fields so he can feed believers in some distant village. You know, God's very very funny in the way he does that, isn't it? He flips people all the time. I think because we do better service when we're not depending on our own skills and ability. When we're a little outside our comfort zone. So expect him to do the unexpected. Remain open to the Spirit's leading. But then be ready. Because you've got to obey that call. And if you're relying on stereotype... Or if you have your five-year plan, and you're into year two, and you really hate to change it, well, then you're not going to be ready to accept the work that God sends you when the time comes, because you're too busy working your own plan. I've seen that at times in my life. I've had to reset, 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 and I think that's a healthy way to think of ministry in general. It doesn't matter what you thought yesterday. It only matters what God's leading you to do today. So now we're going to turn to the opening description of Ezekiel's first vision. As I've warned of already, we're not going to go very deep in this. It's tempting. There's so much here. I will take a larger chunk of it next time. But I felt that trying to run too far today was really going to do disservice to what we want to learn. Let's look at verse 4. 
Into the vision of the first prophecy, Ezekiel says, As I looked, behold, a storm wind was coming from the north, a great cloud, with fire flashing forth continually in a bright light around it. And in its midst, something like glowing metal in the midst of the fire. Now, if you're tempted to keep reading, I don't blame you. In fact, I would encourage it as we get done today, if you want to keep reading and haven't looked at this before, just read chapters 1, 2, and 3. It's going to blow your mind. But we've got to start somewhere, so we're starting here. And this prophecy, as I said, runs into the middle of chapter 3. And his description of what he sees is chapter 1. And then in chapters 2 and 3, he tells us what the Lord says as the Lord calls Ezekiel into his ministry of prophecy. This entire scene is reminiscent of another scene you may already know from another prophet. In Isaiah, in chapter 6, that's when Isaiah sees the Lord seated on the throne. And then we have a song that uses some of the early verses from that chapter, you know, exalted on his throne. And then he talks to the Lord and, and he gets his commission. And there's a very strong similarity between what God is going to tell Ezekiel in this book and what he tells Isaiah in his own book. Key among them is he warns both prophets, I'm going to call you to go talk to a bunch of people who aren't going to listen to you. Which would lead us to ask the next question, right? Why do I do this then? Which is a reminder that sometimes, many times, God's purpose is bigger than those who hear the message the first time. It's the idea of planting and sowing. Not everything you do is going to result in the ultimate outcome, but it's going somewhere. Just be faithful. So, in the vision he gets, you see something very mysterious. And in fact, his visions are, generally speaking, mysterious. And they have even disturbing images in them. And that will make interpretation difficult at times. So interpreting what he says, in other words, gaining a full understanding of its actual meaning, will require a careful adherence to the rules of biblical interpretation. We call those rules hermeneutics. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time in the dry conversation of how we do interpretation. What I'd rather do is model it. I'd rather just show you as we move through the text how we're arriving at what we're learning. And then you'll see the rules on display in that way. And in particular, when you're dealing with this kind of text... Uh, symbolic uh, language in visions that are mysterious and so on. It's very important to distinguish between literal detail and symbolic meaning of that detail. And then applying scripture properly from other places is the key to maintaining a consistent understanding of the symbol. So we'll do all of that. Let's just start with verse 4 and you'll see what I mean. We'll just observe some of the details. First, you've got a storm. Blowing from the north, and it brings this great cloud, and the clouds filled with lightning. Let's start there. Now, you, you and I think about this in our head, we think, gosh, this is just already you know, completely outside our understanding. But the truth is, for someone who's living in Babylon, this is not an uncommon image. This is a very common image. This would have seemed very normal, at least as it starts, because in the Middle East desert, you commonly experience storms, sandstorms or dust storms, that will fit the general description of this vision, at least to a point. The storms will rise up suddenly. They move across the land like this great shadow of dust. Have you ever seen pictures of some of this stuff? It happens not just in the Middle East, but uh, Phoenix is commonly uh, exposed to this kind of stuff. Just Google dust storm or sandstorm and look at some of the pictures, and they don't even look real. They look photoshopped. It's such a different phenomenon. And you can read up on it, it relies on static electricity to help lift some of the particles, and it just, it's, it's like a living thing moving across the land. And they rise up, as I said, suddenly, and they come like a freight train. They just blow across and just destroy things, cover everything in sand. And because of the static electricity that's built up inside these things, they generate huge amounts of lightning. 
lightning is sort of a constant feature. You don't see it very well when it's dust, but it's in there and you can, you can see it sometimes. So the Lord gives Ezekiel what is actually a very familiar image for someone living in that region. But at that point, of course, the details start to go a different direction. And it starts to depart from the normal. Because, for example, naturally, sandstorm clouds are shrouded in darkness. They obscure the sun. You don't get any light. But here it says the storm had a bright light surrounding it. All right, so that's our first detail that's not natural. Furthermore, dust storms are, are monolithic. They're just sand. There's nothing else in them. But in the center of this storm, there is something different. It's glowing like metal, Ezekiel says. So this starts now the process of some interpretation. We're sitting here wondering, what's he trying to tell us? And you think, well, if I just go further, he'll explain it. But not entirely, not in this case. He goes into some new things right away. So we have to stop at this point and gain a general understanding of what's the point of this vision. Can we find it already? And the understanding of some of these symbols is actually accessible to us because of other scripture. For example, clouds or storms of lightning. In the Bible, that's a symbol that's used very consistently. That is, of lightning and clouds and storms, there's a certain thing it's always representing in Scripture. Those are details commonly associated with the appearance of the glory of God. For example, you remember the camp of Israel? When they assembled at the mountain and Moses goes up the mountain? What's covering the top of the mountain? A big cloud, dark in that case, filled with lightning. Then you have Elijah when he's carried up by a whirlwind. A whirlwind is another word for this kind of storm. Or John, who saw the burning fire and, and lightning around the throne in Revelation. There's many other examples. But this is a consistent pattern of God demonstrating His glory in some physical way. It's not the glory of God. It's a manifestation, a representation of the glory of God. And then you have the glowing metal inside this cloud. Well, glowing metal, like it's in a furnace, is another picture that's very consistent in Scripture. It's always a picture of God's judgment. In particular, glowing bronze in a furnace is the specific, most common picture of judgment, God's judgment fire. So you have a representation of God's glory, holding within it God's judgment, and then it says, from the north. And that detail would have been especially significant to the exiles in Babylon, because it was from the north that the Babylonian army rolled into town like a big storm and took over the nation of Judah, took them captive and brought them back into Babylon. And for that matter, a few centuries earlier, Assyria came from the north as well and did something very similar to the northern kingdom. So when you take these three details together, you hear a message. You see a message that's actually very easy to see. That is God communicating through Ezekiel that Babylon was an instrument in God's hands to bring about the judgment that God promised according to his covenant. God is reminding Israel, you're not here because of the vagaries of international politics. You're not here because of the shifting powers of the world battling and you're just collateral damage. You're just here by happenstance. No, no, you're here because I put you here. And don't mistake the fact that Babylon did it. They're just my instrument. But in the end, it was me who brought you here. Isaiah told the people of Israel a few centuries earlier that this is exactly what would happen. In Isaiah 13, verse 1, this is what Isaiah told these people earlier. He said, The oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw, lift up a standard on the bare hill, raise your voice to them, wave the hand that they may enter the doors of the nobles. I have commanded my consecrated ones. I have even called my mighty warriors, my proudly exalted ones, to execute my anger. He's describing Babylon. He's saying to Israel in a sarcastic voice, Stand up, raise your voice, flag them in, like a guy who's leading an aircraft down the runway. 
He tells Israel, get up on the walls and raise your flags. Call them on in. They're coming. And they're coming to execute my anger against you. My consecrated ones. My mighty warriors. He's talking about Babylon. So Israel was on notice from centuries earlier. And yet they did not repent. They did not seek to be obedient. They continued in sin and apostasy. And so now where are they? They're sitting in exile by a channel made by their captors. But now having been in captivity for several years, the temple, the house of the glory of God has now been robbed. The priesthood has been decimated. The people are scattered. They're in slavery. The kingdom has basically ceased to exist. And I suspect they had little hope of going home, at least at this early point. And they're disillusioned. And in a few years hence, Nebuchadnezzar is going to go back to Jerusalem for a third time and he's going to absolutely reduce the temple to rubble. And I have to suspect that some of them, if not all of them, were wondering, why are we here? What happened? How did we get here? What went wrong? They're saying, does God only dwell in Judah? Now that we're outside the land, are we without a God? Because that's never happened before. They don't know. There's no precedent. Are we without a God now? And even if we could return to God, how do we return to Him without a temple where we're supposed to make the sacrifices that are required under the law? Well, I mean, how do we worship Him anymore? And does this captivity mean that the promises He gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have just come to an end? Has He forsaken us? The answers should have been obvious, right? If they just read their own scripture. To answer those questions, the Lord brings Ezekiel visions. And the first vision he brings him is an explanation for their personal circumstances, for why they are where they are. Now, he has a lot more to say, and his message will center on himself, on his sovereignty, his omniscience, his glory, because that's his first priority. But he has to explain to them on the outset, why are you here, Israel? Let's revisit what I've told you. Let me just run down briefly a few scripture that would explain why they're sitting in Babylon in 593 B.C. In Deuteronomy 28.15, through Moses, this is what the people heard. It shall come about, if you do not obey the Lord your God, to observe, to do all His commandments and His statutes, which I charge you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. And then following that verse, let me jump further into the chapter. Here are some of the curses, just some of them. See if you recognize these. Verse 25, The Lord shall cause you to be defeated before your enemies. And you will go out one way against them, but you will flee seven ways before them. And you will be an example of terror to all the kingdoms of the earth. Jumping to verse 30. You shall betroth a wife, but another man will violate her. You shall build a house, but you will not live in it. You shall plant a vineyard, but you will not use its fruit. Your ox shall be slaughtered before your eyes, but you will not eat of it. Your donkey shall be torn away from you and will not be restored to you. Your sheep shall be given to your enemies, and you will have none to save you. Your daughters and your sons shall be given to another people while your eyes look on and yearn for them continually. But there will be nothing you can do. A people whom you do not know shall eat up the produce of your ground and all your labors, and you will never be anything but oppressed and crushed continually. You will be driven mad by the sight of what you see. Those are hard words. right? Hard words. But the Lord issued those warnings through Moses specifically to give Israel incentive to obey the covenant that they just entered into freely. But, as history records, they forgot the covenant. And so now the question becomes, what do you expect God to do under those circumstances? Because here's the point, and really the core of the book of Ezekiel. God's glory is on the line here. His glory is on the line. He could no more ignore the words he spoke to them in this covenant, then he could lie to them. I mean, what do you expect God to do? you expect God to only observe the things in his word that we prefer? Is that a God you can trust? 
Is that a God who who keeps His promises? I mean, that's the challenge. That's the two-sided understanding of what we see in the covenant God gave Israel in the Old. He said to them, you have opportunity for blessing, but there's also going to be consequence for failure. And you can't rest on one side unless you're willing to see God as faithful on both sides. So for His glory's sake, He was obligated to fulfill the terms of His covenant in judgment against Israel. And Israel couldn't understand their circumstances, I suspect, unless they understood the importance of the glory of God. They were in exile because they entered into a covenant with a covenant-keeping God. And we too, friends, are in covenant. By the blood of Christ, we're in a new and better covenant, but we're in covenant with a covenant-keeping God whose first priority in that covenant, in that relationship, is His glory. And you have to appreciate how life circumstances are moving in your life under His hand, according to His will, for His glory. Not for your will, necessarily. Not for your enjoyment, necessarily. Not in the short term. So that when circumstances require, the Lord may bring something difficult into our lives by one means or another. But when He does it, He only does it because His glory requires it. He'll do it to grow us, or to prepare us for what's next, or to disciple us, or to discipline us, but always according to His Word. And a corollary in this truth is that when He does these things in your life, He will not be silent about it. He will not leave you in the dark as to why you are in the situation you are in. No more than He did for Israel. By His Spirit, in His Word, He will explain Himself just as He did to Israel through Ezekiel. But here's the funny thing, at least in my life. When He does, He usually just reminds you of things you already knew. It's never news. You know, it's never, oh, if I had only known that. It's usually, oh, I knew that. But I didn't really follow that, did I? Friends, we serve a holy God who calls us to be like Him. And He asks us to bring glory to His name among the nations. And we must therefore remain faithful to His word so that we can accomplish that goal. But even when we are not, He remains faithful to His. Which means, sometimes, we find ourselves sitting by a river wondering, how did we get here? We'll come back next week. We'll learn a lot more about this vision and where it's going. I hope that's a helpful introduction for you as we enter this book. I'm looking forward to studying it with you. I hope you're looking forward to going through it with us. Dear Father, thank you, Lord, for, uh, for Ezekiel. For a man who was prepared to do many things for you, Father, he was called in, in new and unexpected ways. But he fulfilled that mission. And we thank you, Lord, that you worked through him in difficult times. Father, each of us in our own life, as we walk with you, we may encounter difficulties. But we must, Father, understand that they come as a function of your sovereign, omniscient, and purposeful grace. Help us, Father, to know the truth of why, so that we may receive the lessons properly. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.